Today's reading can be, is taken from Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10, and can be found in the Church Bible, page 682. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the mind be open and the ears of the death unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground hubbling springs in the haunts where jekylls once lied. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to be going through it. If you want to open up in your Bibles, you're very uh, welcome uh, to do so. Have you ever been to a desert? I wonder if you've ever been to uh, a desert. Some of you may well have been to a desert, but without realizing that you've been to a desert. Often when we think of deserts, we think basically of the Sahara Desert. We think of uh, lots of sand dunes and things, and therefore you may think, well, of course, I haven't really been, uh, been to a desert. But, but actually, if you're, if, you're, if you're a geography student, if you're, you know, remember your geography GCSE or A-level, um, you might remember that a desert is not defined by volume of sand. A desert is defined by lack of rainfall, which means, do you know what the largest desert is in the world? I had a number of people there mentioning Antarctica, absolutely. Antarctica is the largest desert in the world. It hasn't rained there for, I don't know, a very, very long time. Uh, Again, it might not be what you naturally think of when you think of a desert, but that is what a, a desert is. In in fact, if you look at this reading, uh, which talks about a desert, that's actually the imagery that it uses. The first verse, the desert and the parched land will be glad. A little bit later on, in the middle of verse 6, water, again, this emphasis on water, will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The desert or a wilderness defined by lack of water, lack of uh, rainfall, which means that you've got, deserts exist from the Sahara to the Antarctic to the Gobi Desert uh, to the Kalahari uh, Desert, defined by a lack of water. And because there's a lack of water, it also means that there's a lack of life. 
Of course, if you watch any David Attenborough programs, you'll know that he can always find life somewhere. You know, you just have to look really, really, really hard. You know, the desert scorpion that survives on two drops of water every three years or something, something ridiculous. You know, God's amazing creation that things can survive in those places. But there is generally a lack of water and a lack of life, which also means there's a lack of people. Not many people live in the desert. Some do, but many don't. And when we think of deserts today... When we think of deserts, we often think of kind of, we sort of romanticize deserts or wilderness places and think, oh, it'd be great to go there, to get away from it all, you know? Oh, out into the desert, away from, away from people, away from things. If you tap in deserts and visiting deserts, there's loads of kind of tourists, kind of uh, tourist people that are arranging trips for you. Four days out in the Sahara, seven days climbing Kilimanjaro in the wilderness or going out to the Gobi Desert or whatever it might be. They're seen as kind of these great wilderness places. But actually, for the majority of people in the world, and actually across the majority of history, wildernesses were not places you wanted to visit. They were generally places of isolation, places of exclusion, places of danger, and also places of death. Now, they are mentioned in the Bible as people going to desert places. People went there to often meet with God, to do exactly that, to get away from things so they can focus on God. And sometimes that's a good thing. You know, across Christian history, many monasteries or whatever are often built out in the wilderness away from other people. They can focus on God. So it's not that deserts are wrong. It's not that deserts are seen as sinful places or evil places, but they're not necessarily places of joy. They're often places of difficulty, places of hardship. And Isaiah was writing in the context of a nation that was going through a desert time. A time where actually when they looked around the nation, it felt like the bad guys were winning when God had abandoned them. And I think sometimes it can feel like that sometimes for us. In my experience talking with people is that I think everybody goes through what they sometimes call desert or wilderness times in their lives. Times when it feels like God is absent. Times when it feels like life is trudgery when it's not easy. Sometimes that's as a result of decisions we've made. Sometimes it's a result of just life circumstances or decisions that other people have made. There may be some of you here this evening. This evening? This morning. I haven't been speaking for that long. Uh, Maybe some of you here this morning who, for you, you say, actually, do you know what? I'm in that desert time in my life at the moment where it feels like God is absent. What does Isaiah say to that? Well, Isaiah looks forward to a time when the desert blooms. Again, I don't know if you've seen any pictures like this. Uh, Just every now and then, every now and then it rains in a desert. And there are these, uh, sometimes you get these amazing shots of, say, places in the Sahara where uh, it just, you know, once in a, I don't know, a year or maybe once every five years, or once every ten years, for one day it rains. And for that one day, all of a sudden, flowers spring up, seeds that have laid dormant for, for years and years. All of a sudden, with, this, with the moisture, they spring up and uh, produce more seeds. And you get these amazing blooms in the desert. Of course, Two days later, when the water is gone, they die. Seeds are dropped to the ground again, waiting for the next sign of life five, ten years down the line. 
But Isaiah paints a picture of a future where the desert will blossom and bloom and it will stay. It will remain. What does Isaiah say about that desert place blooming? Well, as with most good talks, three points. Firstly, he says, this desert blooming, there'll be strength-giving justice. Secondly, there'll be whole-body healing. And thirdly, safe, holy journeying. I'm going to take us through those three things. First of all, oh dear, can you flip back a few slides? Jumping ahead. First of all, strength giving justice. Beginning at verse 3, says this, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. That's the first thing that happens in the wilderness, when the wilderness blossoms, when it blooms. And I think we love those verses until we get to halfway through verse 4. And all of a sudden we say, hang on a minute, I'm not quite sure that makes sense. Verse 4 says this, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. And we read that and say, yes, I'm so with you on that. Your God will come, yes, God will come and sort out the desert and the wilderness. He will come and bring vengeance. And we read that and we say, ah. not so sure about that bit. Isaiah, did you have to say that? With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Vengeance, retribution, leading to salvation. What's going on there? I think for us to understand what's happening here, we need to do a little bit of sort of mental shifting in how we see justice. For us, living in a relatively stable Western country, we take justice and the rule of law for granted. We sort of assume that when bad things happen or if someone does something wrong, that there will be consequences and that our justice system will work. Sure, it needs tinkering around the edges, but generally that it would work well. Sadly, that's not the case for a lot of people across the world or even across history. I remember being um, very impacted by a talk I went to hear uh, by uh, someone from IJM. IJM is International Justice Mission. Uh, and that what they do is they look to, bring, to try and facilitate justice across the world in situations where there isn't justice. And one of the things that this guy in this talk said that's always stuck with me, and I think I've mentioned it before, he said the big issue in the world is not the laws, it's access to justice. The big issue in the world is not laws themselves, but access to justice or access to those laws. And the example he used was, he used the, uh, the horrific example uh, of, uh, of cases of rape, where he said um, the, the horrific uh, case, cases such as that, they are illegal in virtually every country in the world. Rape is illegal in every country in the world, pretty much. Uh, n- there are hardly any countries that say that is okay. The issue is that for many people in the world, they don't have access to that law. They experience something that that happens, but they can't get access to the courts because either they need a certain amount of money to be able to get access to the courts, or they need to know the right people, or they need to bribe the right person, or whatever it might be. There's something else they need to do to be able to get access to that law which they can't or don't have. And so the issue isn't the laws, it's the access to justice. And sadly, that is the case for many, many people uh, across the world. Isaiah says, he paints a picture for the future, and he says, one day justice will be done. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. 
Now again, we may say, oh, I don't quite understand that, but actually it is amazingly freeing when you realize that. As Christians, we say we're called to forgive. And we are. But one of the ways that we're called to forgive is saying, God, this this hideous crime, whatever it may be that's been done to me, I can hand that over to God. I can forgive them, but I'm handing it over to God in the knowledge that there is and will be justice in some way, in some future time, knowing that God will sort that out. And I think that's talking about the big things, war crimes left unresolved, violent raids on remote villages that no one ever hears about, perpetrators of modern-day slavery. But I also believe it'll happen in the small things too. Those bullies at school who made your life a misery. The person who stole the wheels off your bike when you'd locked it somewhere. The person who took money from their company by fiddling their expenses. There will be justice. And we should be thankful for our justice system here uh, in the UK. As I said, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than a lot of other places uh, across the world. When Isaiah talks about these things, um, uh, you have to kind of read it in a number of different ways. Uh, He's not only talking about way off in the future in a kind of heavenly kingdom, but also encouraging people to bring these things about now. And we believe that we are part of God's kingdom now with Jesus as our king. And therefore we, as well as thinking about the future, are called to fight for justice now for those who are poor and those who are vulnerable. Uh, As some of you know, I'm currently a chaplain to the high sheriff of Cheshire. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, one of the, his responsibilities is uh, to uh, commission the judges uh, and the magistrates uh, every year at the start of the legal year. Who knew there was a legal year? But it begins in November every year. Uh, so uh, in November, we had this service at the cathedral where we all gathered together all the judges, all the magistrates, all in their wigs and their, fine, uh, and their finery. And um, Mark Mitchell, current high sheriff, uh, commissioned them. And we got an opportunity to pray for them. And we had an opportunity to remind them that what they do is not just a job to earn money. It's actually key to the fabric of society. That laws are upheld, that the poor, the vulnerable are looked after and are fought for. It was a wonderful thing. I was a real real privilege to be involved with. We need to be praying for, we need to be uh, uh, supporting those involved with legal cases and if you do, I know some people here have had the opportunity to, be, to sit on a jury. And sometimes I know that can be frustrating when it cuts across other things, other plans you had in life. But I think sometimes we need to go into that saying, okay, here's my opportunity, if that ever comes to you, here's my opportunity to be involved with making sure that justice is done. And I think God calls us to that. So, first of all, strength giving justice. Number two, whole body healing. Beginning at verse 5, Isaiah says this, Then will the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. First of all, the blossoming desert talks about justice. Secondly, here it talks about healing. And that there will one day be healing. Now, I should point out, I don't think this list is exclusive. I think if you've got ailments that aren't on this list, I think you're still going to be okay, all right? But I think the fact that it lists all these things, kind of you know, four things, in, you know, I, think it's, I think it's talking about how everything will be healed. Everything will be uh, sorted out. 
I think to fully understand this, though, again, we have to do a bit of a shift in our thinking. Physical ailments back then were much more debilitating than they are now. Medical science uh, back then uh, was nowhere near where we are today. They didn't have painkillers back then, apart from maybe alcohol. They didn't have operations except gruesome amputations, and most medicine was superstitious. Add on to that, there was a stigma that came with disability. There was the thinking that you were only disabled if you had somehow sinned or your parents had done something wrong. And then add to that a misunderstanding of infection, meaning that people were scared to associate with anyone with any sort of illness or disability for the, the, the risk that they might be infected. And hence, people were ostracized from communities who had disabilities or illnesses. Where did they go? The wilderness. It's often where people ended up going. Read of leper colonies gathered together in the wilderness, excluded from the society uh, around them. As I said, things are much better for us today when we have access to, uh, you know, wonderful uh, medics, wonderful uh, kind of, you know, places of healing, hospitals, uh, you know, pharmacies uh, and the like. But in my experience, when I've talked to people, my experience is that everybody has things with their bodies or their minds that maybe don't quite work as maybe they feel they have been designed to be originally. Maybe they don't quite work in the way that they should. I remember when I was, um, uh, when I was under 10, I think I was about 7 or 8, uh, I remember uh, collecting tokens on the back of penguin wrappers. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this sermon, and I realized there might be a number of people here who don't remember that ever being a thing, collecting tokens. I don't know, do you, I don't know if you still collect tokens on the back of cereal packets or whatever. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I remember as a seven, eight-year-old, on the back of penguin packets, you could collect these tokens. And when you collected a certain number of these tokens, you could send it off, and they would send you a penguin. Not a real one, obviously. A stuffed one. Not a real stuffed one. A toy penguin. So I collected up, I don't know how many tokens it was, uh, 10 or so from the back of these penguin packets, you know, doing exactly what the advertising was supposed to do, badgering my mom, can we have penguins, can we have penguins, I'm trying to get these tokens, send them off, send them off. And then uh, a month later, uh, in the post came, wrapped up in a package, a penguin. It was fantastic. You don't receive a lot of posts as a seven-year-old, so it was amazing getting this thing through the post, got this penguin, put it upstairs uh, with my other toys. I probably, I don't know what I called it, I probably gave it an original name like penguin. Uh, so I, I had this penguin, and um, a few weeks later, a letter came through the post. Again, not used to receiving letters. This was great. Letter came through the post, opened it, and what it said was, it said, we're really sorry. We discovered a defect with your penguin. The eyes on your penguin, uh, we've discovered, um, uh, have a tendency to fall off, and there's a danger that they're going to be a choking hazard for under three-year-olds. Therefore, um, please, could you return your penguin to us and we will send you a new penguin. Now, I did what probably all other seven-year-olds did in the country. I didn't quite trust them, so I kept my penguin. I didn't want to send off this penguin, so I kept this penguin. And a few weeks later, do you know what appeared in the post? Another parcel. It was another penguin. They sent me another penguin with a letter that said, 
we're sending you this penguin as a replacement for the penguin that we sent you before with the defective eyes. This penguin uh, would like you to keep, and could you send back the original penguin in our self-addressed envelope back to us, what, package or whatever, back to us so we can look after it. Thank you very much. What do you think I did? I kept both penguins. <laughs> of course I did. So now I had two penguins. I thought, ah, great. The story doesn't end there, though. A few weeks later, I got another letter in the post. Do you know what it said? It said, we're really sorry. We've discovered the eyes on all the penguins are dodgy. Please could you send back your penguin, brackets. Please could you send back your penguins and we will give you five pounds in kind of back for your penguin. Now, I was in a bit of a quandary then. If I sent back two penguins, was I going to get ten pounds? Or would I only get five pounds? So I kept the penguins. Both penguins at home. The one with the, yes, both with defective eyes. As I think about that story, it makes me think somebody at McVitie's must have been having a really, really bad month. Can you imagine? Can you imagine McVitie's being phoned up by the penguin manufacturers just saying, ah, we've just discovered something about all these thousands of penguins you've mailed out. They're not safe. You've got to recall them all. And then I'm sending them more penguins out to then discover they were bad as well. Someone was having a really, really bad day. These notes saying, please return these penguins to sender. Something must have happened in the workshop, I don't know, in the, in the factory where just something happened with the eyes that they just weren't quite sewn on properly or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. But sometimes, sometimes I feel like that's what it's like for us with our bodies. When I chat to a number of people, some people say, do you know what, I wish I could send my body back to sender and get a new one. And as I said, my experience in talking to so many different people is I don't know anybody who doesn't have some something, something that's just not quite working right with their body, whether it's asthma or anxiety, whether it's dyspraxia to depression, whether it's diabetes to dyslexia, whether it's heart disease to kidney disease, whatever it may be. Some things that are very big, some things that are very small, some things that develop as life goes on, some things that one lives with one's whole life. It all goes to say, for me to say, I am so looking forward to my new body in heaven. I don't know if any of you are looking forward to your own new body. It's not my new body. <laughs> And it can be very, very small things, all very, very big things. I'm so looking forward to my new body. And Isaiah paints a picture of the future when there will be full healing, mentally and physically, psychologically, physiologically, healing in the future. As I said with the point on justice, though, we look forward to that day, and at the same time, though, we look to bring healing now how we can. Our vision statement here at church, seeing lives restored through Jesus. We want to see people's lives restored spiritually, mentally, physically, every way through Jesus. And actually part of what we are called to do is not just think about that healing in the future, but look to enact it now. And that's why we need to support uh, members of our congregation who are involved uh, with, with, with that healing professions whether it's doctors or medics or physios or pharmacists or whatever, whatever it might be. And we need to be praying for healing for people as well. Praying that people may ex experience some of that healing which we're going to have in the future now, on earth now.
We have a prayer ministry team that meet after the service each Sunday. And you're very, if there are things you need prayers for, prayers for healing included, please do go and see them or ask people around you to pray for you. Prayers for healing. Whole body healing. That's a vision for the future. So number one, strength giving justice. Number two, whole body healing. Number three, safe, holy journeying. The final part of this chapter talks about a highway. A highway will be there. A highway, a highway. I am the rat of the highway, and whatever I eat, I choose. I've been wanting to say that for ages. It's just what, I don't know, if anyone here has got small kids, you know, you know that's from a Julia Donaldson book, but it's all goes through my head when I think of highway. Anyway, a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. How do we make sense of this highway? Well, again, I think we have to shift our thinking when we read this to help us understand what it's talking about when it talks about uh, a highway. Today, again, in our culture, in our context, we don't think much about traveling here, there, and everywhere. In some ways, transport is very, very easy. Yesterday, uh, I was in Liverpool. Uh, We have a kind of tradition with our kids. On a Saturday, coming up to Christmas, we take them uh, into Liverpool and go to a museum, go to... um, uh, go and see the lights, go to a fantastic Turkish kebab place, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, take, the kids, uh, take the kids there as a day out. But as I was preparing this, I was thinking, well, what would it be like if trying to get to Liverpool, there wasn't a train? Or what if there wasn't a road going to Liverpool? What if Liverpool was a city over there, and I was in Chester, but there, there wasn't any, all there was was a dirt track or a footpath to get there? What impact would that have? Well, for a start, it would take me considerably longer to get there, I'd probably not think about doing it with the kids. And what, but, but then there'd be other problems as well. What if I got halfway there and uh, realized we'd run out of food or water or it started to rain? What would I do? No hotels, no, nothing else in between here and there. And what about if I was there at night? Would I stay the night somewhere? That could be pretty dangerous as well. The thing is, we take transport for granted. We don't don't think much of catching a train to Liverpool or Manchester or jumping on a train down to London or driving to Scotland or even catching a plane to anywhere around the world. It kind of comes naturally or we kind of don't think too much of it. But for a lot of people across the world and actually a lot of people across history, traveling and journeying was something that was done infrequently because it was dangerous. It was expensive. A lot of people could only travel if they were rich because if you were rich, you could have bodyguards with you. I remember when I was in uh, a story of when I was in Kenya um, many years ago, and I was traveling from Naivasha in uh, the North Kenya down, back down to Nairobi. And uh, we were uh, in a minivan, uh, myself and various other tur- kind of, uh, tourists. Um, and uh, we were coming towards Nairobi, and it was in the late afternoon, uh, and the road was blocked. I don't know what they were doing. Um, I think there might have been some roadworks or something. Um, but we knew that we could try to just scoot round the side and go into Nairobi in a slightly different, on a slightly different route. Um, but our driver uh, had, was having this discussion with, uh, with the, uh, or his, his friend, his colleague in the minivan. Um, and in the end, they decided, I'm really sorry, they said, we're turning around and we're going back to Naivasha. Uh, and we said, I, why? It's, you know, I don't understand. There's, surely there's another way around to get into Nairobi. Um, can we just go around that way? And they said, no, no, you don't understand. It, it's going to get dark. And we don't want to be on the road driving in Nairobi when it's dark. I chatted with them a bit more about it. Why? I, I don't understand. Um, and they, they, they explained. They said, well, the thing about it is when it gets dark in Nairobi, there are a lot of things that could go wrong. And 
First of all, you've got all the cars that don't have working headlights. Uh, you can't see them when you're driving along. There's a high chance you could crash into them, and we don't want that to happen. Then there are all the cars that do have working headlights, but they ever, all everyone drives around with their headlights on full beam because it's good for them. It doesn't matter it's not good for other people. It's good for them, so they can see stuff, but no one else can see anything. So we don't want to go around for that reason. Um, also, we're driving a minivan full, basically, of white people. In Nairobi, in the dark, that is not, that's just going to be a bit of a recipe for disaster. We're just like a walking target going around. But sadly, what they said. So we said, okay, let's go to Naivasha then. So we went back up to Naivasha. For them, traveling, journeying around was dangerous. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? The story of the Good Samaritan is someone traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked in the wilderness by robbers because that was where they were, where they set about attacking people. Isaiah paints a picture of in the future there is a highway in the middle of the wilderness. In the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert place, there is a highway that is safe. You can journey on it safely. And only, he says, only the holy people will be on it. The wicked won't be able to be on it. Again, for people reading it, that would have made a lot of sense and that would have been wonderful. You mean I can travel around safely? You mean I can get from A to B through the middle of the wilderness and it will be okay? Not only is it going to be safe, it's also going to be fast. A highway because it has the image of something that's straight and probably flat and easy underfoot. Think of straight Roman roads. Isaiah paints this picture of the highway. What can we take from that? Well, uh, the thing that I think fascinates me about it is that it's called the highway of holiness. Suggesting, as he says, that only people who are holy, who live right, can go on it. To me, that says that he was painting a context, painting a picture of a time and of a place where living holy, doing the right thing, was the easy thing to do. Because that's what the highway was for. Doing the right thing was the easy thing to do. And so often I feel that at the moment it, it doesn't feel like that. Often in our culture today, it's easier to go along with the crowd than stand up for what you believe in. It's easier to bow to pressures around us. It's easier to do what our bosses at work tell us, even if we know it's not the right thing to do. It feels easier to give in to temptations online or otherwise than not to do so. And Isaiah is pointing to a time when actually doing the right thing was easier on the highway of holiness. So three points for us. Strength-giving justice, whole-body healing, safe, holy journeying. And we are called to point people forward to those times. In the future, that will happen. But we're also called to say it's also possible here now. And as Christians, we're called to encourage people in those ways. I look forward to the time when justice reigns. But for now, we are called to fight for the rights of the poor and the vulnerable. I look forward to where there, a time when there is no more pain and no more death. But for now, we are called to alleviate suffering now. I look forward to a day when living a holy life is the easier option. But we are called to live holy lives of witness now. 
And as I come to finish, um, uh, what I'd like to do is um, I'd love to pray uh, for some people here who are involved in those three areas uh, of life uh, now. I'm aware there may be uh, some, there may be a number of people in one area, but maybe not other people, not in another area. So. Um, I'd love you to do something if you're confident doing this. Don't feel you have to, but it would be really appreciated if you would. Um, uh, I'm going to go through these different things and then give give a chance to pray uh, for for those people. I'm just going to lead us in prayer for them. So I was wondering, first of all, I'm aware the answer to this might be nobody, but if there's anyone here who's involved with justice in any way, uh, whether it's you know as a judge, as a magistrate, as a lawyer, or anyone who knows that they've got jury service coming up, or anything kind of like that, I was wondering if you'd be happy to stand up uh, in order that just we can you can symbolise us praying for you in your role, um, and then I will lead us in a prayer for you, and then I'm going to do the same with the other two areas. Is there anyone in that category? If the answer is no, that's absolutely fine. Okay, let me pray for, 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 for that area anyway. Heavenly Father, we lift before you people, uh, members of this congregation, maybe you aren't here, but anyone we know who's involved with justice, involved with bringing about uh, security and safety for the poor and the vulnerable. We pray, Lord, may we live in a culture and a society where true justice uh, is, uh, is done. We ask in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm hoping there are a few more people for this second category. If you're here and you're involved in any way in the healing profession, so whether it's as a doctor or as a nurse or as a physio, as a pharmacist, anything even vaguely related to that, I was wondering if you'd be happy to stand up. Amazing. Okay. So I'm just going to pray for these people, but also in praying for them, we're thinking about praying for uh, anyone we know in those positions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these people. We thank you for these four, but also the, uh, the people they represent. And we pray for your blessing upon them. May they know that they are doing more than a job just to earn money, Lord, but they are doing a job that is bringing about your kingdom here now. Thank you for them, Lord. Bless them with... Bless them with compassion and love for those that they serve. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Now for the final one, I'm going to ask anyone here who's involved with transportation. Okay? So anyone who's involved with, you know, if you're involved with driving buses or lorries or anything like that. But I'd also like to include anyone who's involved with energy. So if you're involved with creating energy that will itself go to power other things whether it's electric cars or, or whatever it might be, or if you're involved with m- the making of things that go towards making transport. Does that make sense? Love to pray for you. If you'd be happy to stand up, that would be great. Amazing. So I'm going to pray for these, uh, these four people, and, but uh, again, we're praying for others we know as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for those involved with the safe transportation of, uh, of people, of us. Uh, we pray, Lord, may you help them to do their jobs diligently that we may be kept safe and that they may uh, do their jobs for the glory of you. Amen. Amen. One final thing to mention before um, I finish, and that's to say this. 
I talked about uh, God bringing justice. Uh, but often when we think about that, um, as I've, even as I've said it, you may be thinking, I'm not sure if actually I'm the person who's done things wrong. And that actually when I read that bit that says he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution to come to save you, we may be thinking, actually, I'm not sure if I'm going to be the one being saved in that situation or the one who's being judged. He paints a picture of that highway of holiness on which we can only walk if we're holy. But I'm sure that each of us knows that we probably don't deserve to be on that highway. In fact, there is only one person who deserves to be on that highway. And that is the person of Jesus. Jesus came to walk on that highway, but not just to walk on that highway. Jesus came to invite us to walk on that highway. To invite us to to do that because of the muck in our lives, the things that we have done wrong, the times that we have contributed to, uh, to injustice. We can lay that down. And Jesus says, come and walk with me on this highway of holiness. Jesus, in fact, did it so much that he wasn't, doesn't just invite us to be on the highway. He is the highway. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a bit later on in the service, as we come to celebrate communion, we remember that we partake in Jesus as he invites us onto that highway of holiness. That being with him there, we may journey with him through the desert of our lives, sometimes through the wilderness times of our life, that there is a highway that we can walk on with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you created a pathway in the wilderness. And that often in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, we are aware that often we're the people who sometimes deserve to be in the wilderness, and yet you call us to join you on the highway of holiness. Show us this Advent, what that means for each of us in our lives. We ask in your name. Amen.